0: Well, I can't really introduce him as he more or less invited you all. This is Patrick, um, Senior Lecturer in Nottingham Trent University, a uh, member of the BSB executive and also um, broadcaster of the Thales Well podcast, which he's just set up a couple of Shameless weeks ago. Of yeah, which you've got leaflets for, or you will be getting a leaflet for. Um, and he's going to talk to us about, oh I mean, yeah, just said this word, yeah, Knowsguard. Close, close enough for jazz. Close yeah. god bodies and the terrible beauty of brain surgery. Um, okay, uh, everybody, so um, I'm going to be talking about uh, Niles Gardner. Has anybody, have we heard of him, have read him? <laughs> <laughs> Tough crowd, okay. Um, so I'm also, uh, like Willy, I'm also filling in, so if you could be um, tolerant and open-minded that would be terrific. What I want to talk about is, uh, I'm going to talk about Nausgaard's uh, work generally first, and then I'm going to move on to a particular essay he's done about brain surgery, which I provided you some quotes. Uh, I will have to put a trigger warning on those quotes because they're pretty, if you're of a squeamish disposition, they're, they're pretty um, squeamish inducing um, So I'll give you the full embodied experience here, basically. Um, I'm, also, uh, I'm also interested in his work because I think. Firstly, I think it's an interesting, his work represents an interesting moment in sort of the development of the history of fiction. Um, He's an exponent of uh, what's called auto fiction, which I'll try and explain. Uh, Also, he's uh, important, I think, he's an important moment for looking at the intersection between literature and philosophy. And what I'm going to talk about is perhaps how we can use phenomenology to talk about fiction, talk about his work. So uh, for those of you who don't know him, which seems to be uh, everybody, um, I'm going to talk about his fiction, right? So firstly, is, um, is there's a, I guess there's sort of three sort of distinct periods. There's his first uh, efforts at novels, uh, where he talks which are out of this world, and a time for everything. And there, are, uh, a time for everything is a strange novel. Uh, it's a good exemplar to get us talking. In a time for everything, um, it's. It's a story, a long, long novel, about how angels become seagulls, basically. So angels kind of do this sort of reverse transfiguration and end up as, I'm spoiling the, the ending now, but they end up as seagulls off the coast of Norway in the end, right? <laughs> but that's just sort of tell you of the direction of where he's taking uh, his fiction. It's very much about the phenomena of this world. It's very much about the mundane and the quotidian and the banal, right? Um, also, he's a... Um, he's, uh, his main book uh, is called uh, Mein Kampf, right? He called it that, yes. Yeah, uh, and I'll explain his reasons for that uh, as I as I as I progress. Um, uh, and uh, uh, also, his most recent work is the quartets. So Mein Kampf is basically. So I can't say it without keeping it a straight face. Mein Kampf is about. Uh, it's a very, very long excursus on himself, where he talks about himself and tries to retrieve his past self in as much detail as uh, possible. I mean, it's, 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 it's really, really astonishing the amount of detail he goes into. I mean, uh, does it, for example, there's a really, there's there's a scene in the first uh, volume of *Man Kampf, or *My Struggle*, which um, <laughs> doesn't sound any better in English. <laughs> uh, um, there's a in the first volume of My Struggle, he um, he he, uh, he um, it's about the death of his father, who looms large over the novel, uh, if I can call it a novel, who uh, and he spends like, like over a hundred pages talking about cleaning his father's house. His father had sort of deteriorated, and he was living in sort of abject conditions. And by the end of it, like, uh, I mean, he, he, Nostalgist is talking about. Uh, different types of detergents he uses in sort of this excruciating detail for pages upon pages upon pages. He is very, very compelling, right? So that is his auto-fiction. The quartets look outward. They're about the world. They're, they're sort of a love letter to his daughter, basically, who he introduces to the world. And he goes, this is the reason the, why the world is worth living. So it's auto-directed, outer- right? And also one thing I, uh, I, I, I note, uh, that's worth noting about him and what I'm going to be talking about today is he's a, he's a really good essayist. In fact, a lot of his, f- his fiction, if I can call it that, or his autofiction, is uh, filled with uh, essays on philosophy, and he's got standalone essays as well. One of the essays I'm going to be talking about today is The Terrible Beauty of Brain Surgery, but uh, he's also got outstanding essays on um, on Russia and America, um, and uh, there's an excellent essay on uh, Anders Breivik, the uh, the, uh, the Norwegian um, terrorist, and fascist terrorist. All right. so... Um, that's 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 the background. Now, what it, where is coming from? Right, is uh, this this sort of literary moment? Right, I think. Now, uh, which is called autofiction. I'm trying to explain what autofiction is. Uh, it's not really autobiography. It Sort of sees itself as distinct from autobiography, um, because autobiography is kind of a, has sort of real no phenomenological value because it's someone at the end of a life looking back over a life and sort of imposing a narrative on. it. So it doesn't have sort of a, there's not a lived narrative to it. It's not memoir autofiction, because memoir tends to be more sort of, kind of autobiographical. it's more sort of an impression, impressionistic account of uh, history. <laughs> um, but we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of um, uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, texts out at the moment. Um, so we have like, people like uh, Chris Krause, I love Dick, it's a great book. That's also hard to say in public. Yeah. <laughs> uh, settled uh, I think, was probably a real uh, precursor to now start. Um, Didier Eribon uh, and um, possibly Ed- Edward Louis as well. And so, um, this so autofiction is, I guess, a kind of a kind of confession. So certainly in the historical, or the philosophical tradition, I mean, we don't, we have plenty of examples of this in philosophy. You think of people like uh, Rousseau, Confessions, St. Augustine, he called his book The Confessions. Um, But I mean, there's also other texts like uh, Wordsworth and the Preludes. Uh, I mean, you could take it back to Hesiod if you wanted to. But I think, so what I'm going to try and do today is say, what is distinctive about this this sort of, this moment, this autofiction moment is... Uh, which is sort of, I guess, it's, it's kind of got this real commitment to objectivity. something almost like hyper objectivity. Uh, yes, it is very much a form of self expression. So, for this reason, I think it's with elements of fiction, with elements of fiction, sort of somewhere between fiction and fact, auto fiction. Um, and it's sort of kind of marked by this sort of excessive sort of documentarian style, right? Now, also of course, uh, in the, there is there is a couple of indexes that I, uh, that I would uh, like to talk about as well. Now, uh, for for Nausgaard in the terms of the literary tradition, before I talk about what I think makes him distinctive and why he's worth looking at for, for philosophy, phenomenology, and literature in general, um, the main sort of index, of course, for for for, for Nausgaard is uh, is uh, Proust. Proust. his his, his novels are or sort of Mein Kampf is very much about an attempt to sort of retrieve memory, in the same sense that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Proust did, uh. so it's very much sort of a reflection on the, uh, on the nature of, uh, of, uh, of memory. Now it's, it's 3,600 pages long, right, so I can, I, I actually I'm not quite an expert on it because I've only read the first five volumes. So, which means uh, I'm. This, the second one hasn't been translated yet. It's out in August. I'm looking forward to it. Which is the last, the last twelve hundred pages, basically. So I'm about two thirds of the way through it at the moment after the first five volumes. And uh, in, 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 in 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 there, I mean, we, we get the, to see these themes. I think the sort of the philosophical themes come through more, most uh, uh, specifically. So it is his struggles, right, in the in the text are. Defined by, I guess, sort of an essential trauma. Right? his father is uh, excessively violent, aggressive, abusive, and uh, Nasgaard, from sort of a very early age, He's sort of kind of constantly trying to retrieve uh, what happened, the, the the sort of initial trauma, and it sort of keeps recurring throughout the novel. There's so this sort of violent patriarch figure who he's struggling with to try and understand, feel compassion for. Uh, As well as try to overcome is the long shadow he casts. In a way, also I think that's one of the things. It's a a sort of a warts and all uh, thing. Uh, uh, It's a warts and all text. Nausgaard will go to the the parts of himself which are filled with shame. He will talk. uh, He will. He has excessive shyness. He suffers from excessive embarrassment. And these things become that 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 embodies it. It's kind of the what it mediates. uh, Nausgaard. With the with the world, so in a sense, um, he says himself that he has troubles with narcissism. The 3,600-word book about himself probably should give you that uh, <laughs> give you uh, that, that, that cue. But uh, in a sense, what it is really is a struggle trying to overcome his own narcissism. What he sees sort of shyness, uh, shame, uh, uh, as, as, as 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 examples of. It's also well, there's got the Proustian thing about the rule the, the the sort of the attempt to recuperate memory. It's also uh, in the text there's a kind of quite a Heideggerian atmosphere to it, I think, because all, all the way through the text there are sort of I guess these moves between the absolute banal. I mean, it's suffused with the banal and the quotidian in this text, but also there are these rare exceptional moments of meaning. So in some sense you've got that sort of split between the inauthentic and authentic that we get in. Get in, get in Heidegger. So his meaning really comes from very, very sort of very rare moments, usually to do with his writing. Uh, or is the birth of his children, I think is probably a very, very, very uh, interesting uh, moment on that. Now, I think in terms, so I want now to talk about uh, why I think he's distinctive. What makes this, his, this brand of auto-fiction uh, distinctive? Because from the outside, it looks like it's all about, you know, himself, Self-obsession. It's, um, I mean, it's also relentlessly male as well. It's a relentlessly male authorial vice, sort of trying to re-establish itself almost, you know. Which is uh, after sort of the sort of postmodern fiction. It's a sort of an interesting uh, development, I think. Um, so, how do we sort of think about what he's offering to philosophy, phenomenology, and literature? This is now starts. And I think, firstly, I think uh, there is a sort of a kind of a Blanchotian moment in. in, in, in now, I mean, he has been criticised for being a bad writer, effectively. I mean, if you're looking for style, plot, measure, the mechanics of writing, he's, 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 he's not sort of as consistent on that, right? But in a sense, that's kind of the punt for him, like, he's not really interested in the mechanics. It's precisely what's interested in resisting. What is it about fiction that resists the mechanism of, 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 the mechanisms of the text, you know? Uh, and in a sense, that's why people like Sebol and Kafka are probably uh, good 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 precursors to look at. Yeah. So the mechanics of literature are not necessarily unimportant, but they're but they're uh, they're secondary. So he's kind of reversing that that, that moment. And uh, that, that's I guess where we get the Proustian. That's where we get the Proustian moment as well. The sort of attempt to reconcile um, memory and the banal with uh, the significant and the meaningful, right? And in the sense, what's in this text is, for a text that's about the self, right, is very much about trying to get out of the self or transcend the self. It's what negates the self. Right? In the sense that the, the literary text tries to represent the 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 in the sense that the literary text repre- tries to represent a self mechanically. If you follow me. I also think he's interesting because in Nausgaard. The term I'm sort of using to describe what he does or achieves is, I guess, hypernaturalism. Hypernaturalism is what I would I would call it. I've I've I think I'm pining it. I don't know. I'm not that clever. But the uh, I think I've looked it up. I've, uh, I've looked it up extensively on uh, Google last night. Um, <laughs> no one else seems to have used it. They've used the word hyperrealism, which I'll be suing them for. But hyper, hyper hypernaturalism. Um, that's roughly where he is. So since he has. We, there, is in, there is a Proustian rejection of realism or a modernist rejection of realism in Ausgard, right? Um, but there's also a kind of uh, rejection of modernism in. So Joyce and Joyce and, and um, Joyce and Proust are certainly indexes, but also we get this like this excruciating attention to detail in these texts, right? Um, you know that sort of hypernaturalism. That sort of a t- a hy- there's a sort of a hyperrealism in it, I guess, um, whereby the sort of the Proustian stream of consciousness is synthesised with um, sort of excessively naturalistic accounts of uh, the banal, the everyday, and the quotidian. I don't know why I said those three words because they effectively mean the same thing. But um, yeah. But so what he's doing there in that? With this, uh, I think he's doing this sort of trying to perform a Blanchotian movement in his fiction, right? Is uh, talking about uh, he sort of do that Blanchotian idea. sort of theory of fiction is the idea that it's what's it's what's absent in the text that's what's actually interesting. It's what what has a life-affirming, a life-bringing life quality to it. Right, and instead of excruciating attention to detail and the minutia of everyday life, the minutia of shame within that, the minutiae of embarrassment and self-loathing, that's what sort of allows him to sort of step outside of himself. Right, that's what that's. What the what his, uh, his uh, fiction represents, and that's why I think it is uh, distinctive, or is at least a distinctive moment, sort of in the development of the history of literature. Um, so, what then? Uh, how then does the, does uh, the body uh, come into this? Why, I mean, since for um, how oh, many for time. Oh my God! Um, oh yeah, extra time. Uh, yeah. So uh, the uh, the body within Nostalgia's texts is involuntary in a sense, but it's not yet instincts, right? He, does, he talks about sort of instincts in his quartets and he sort of says that they're, you know, that they're, that they're, it sort of makes a Heideggerian point that the sort of instinct sort of, well, sort of ties the, ties the dog to his vomit, as, as, a, as Beckett says, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, is the ballast that sort of uh, keeps the, keeps animals in this world, where he thinks that sort of uh, I and mean, then when he sort of sees that the body is something that sort of mediates the self with the world. And in, throughout the texts, um, despite his sort of, his own sort of narcissistic failings and his own sort of ambition and grandiosity, there's a great levity in it. It's quite sort of funny, and the body constantly reasserts itself. The body constantly reasserts itself throughout the text. Uh, and the body is seen as a sort of a site of contestation, a site of surpassing something that allows it to surpass himself. The first example in uh, my struggle is uh, where he talks about his father. Looking, he does this excruciatingly long, uh, brutal uh, description of his father's uh, corpse after he died. And in some sense, he saying how this sort of the corpse sort of occupies this strange space between life and death, uh, even if it's if it's even if it's even if it's uh, sort of manifestly dead. Right? Uh, the body also reasserts itself. Uh, through uh, sort of the minutiae of shame, as I call it, in, in this, Lautrec constantly talks about sort of bodily function, bodily secretions. You know I mean, he's he's, he's, uh, he's he's constantly talking about uh, you know the desire to have sex. He talks about objectifying women and stuff like that. Uh, he talks about uh, he talks about uh, masturbation excessively in this. He doesn't figure out how to uh, masturbate, I think, until he's uh, eighteen, which is—that's right. I can tell you. <laughs> Yeah, I <laughs> know yeah, that's what he says. Yeah, yeah. He was like, "Why, why wasn't I doing this for years?" I don't But I mean, that's the—that's that that's type of that type of uh, that type of sort of humor and levity is is sort of sort of the, th- the thing that sort of brings him to the world. That's life, I mean, life bringing, as he says himself. He talks about his failed sexual exploits. Uh, he talks about the failure of a successful sexual exploits uh, and his sort of chronic shyness. Right? And so he also talks about the banality of the body, the body, you know, I mean, in the minutia of everyday life, looking after his kids, pushing prams with a, with a, with a slight hobble. And all the way through it, you get this sort of, this, this sort of, there's a sort of, sort of, sort of great pathos to it. You know, in the same way that the seagulls come down from, from the heavens, or the angels come down from the heavens and turn into seagulls, in Nascar, he has this sort of, this this sort of brutal, relentless male authorial vice constantly becomes mediated through an attention to his uh, to his uh, to his body. So that sort of humor and levity is the sight of the body. The, the fiction sort of performs that. Um, there's um, that's a that's that's uh, that's George Osborne. Um, uh, yeah. So, so what we're getting then, right? So sort of the phenomenological themes, or how I think phenomenology. Is useful to talk about Nascard, Uh is well obviously the part I was talking about the sort of constant reassertion of the body, uh, a sort of combined with a sort of Proustian desire to uh, relive pain, suffering and struggle. Right, so that's the struggle of uh, of Mein Kampf. Right, uh, what we get in, uh, in 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 Nascard's book is actually a quite sort of. A, It's bordering on the political, I think, but what he's doing is a a, a rejection of the actual uh, Hitler text. Because what he's saying, I think, is that, uh, and he talks about this in the last volume, he says that what we get in sort of Mein Kampf, he does like a 400-page essay on it, he says in Mein Kampf what we get, we don't get a U, there's no U in the text, he says as such, it's all about the eye and the ideology, and the thousand-year Reich, and there's this sort of huge, inf- over-inflated sense of ideological purity and grandiosity of a cosmic scale. So in a, sense, in a sense, what he's trying to do, as far as literature can do, is he's trying to retake that territory, retake that text. That's why he said he called it. He said, why not call it that? Let's take that term back. So his struggles are not grandiose, they're not cosmic, they're very, very small. They're about the minutiae, right? The minutia, that uh, make make up a life, and that's what I think. That's what sort of the phenomenological sort of method can sort of bring to that, because the, the minutiae is, is of struggle and suffering is what gives sort of the text, I think, a kind of an intentionality, right? So what he's doing, right, is uh, he's he's very overtly rejecting the idea of disinterestedness, right, and he's very much affirming. What he, what he sees as uh, interestedness, interestedness, right? Or attachment, I think he calls it in one of his novels, the idea that we are attached to a world, right? Rather than this sort of, sort of grandiose, sort of ideological track by Hitler, which is sort of purports to be objective and neutral, right? So, and we hear the word the sort of interesse, it's kind of a sort of phonological term, sort of here in the Latin, so interesse, it's about being in the midst of things, right? So, it's not about sort of the mechanics of the text at all, it's about interestedness, attachment, investment. Commitment. Uh, Where uh, the text is about sh- making manifest how we think of the things themselves. To use uh, Husserl's, uh, Husserl's, Husserl's uh, uh, famous phrase, and what he's doing as well is he's kind of he's not he's not rejecting the self, I think, but he is sort of reasserting it in a sense. But he's, he's trying to unwork I guess, the sovereignty of the self, the, the idea of the sort of. The absolute will, the absolute will. So the question of will is not not in, is not really in in, in, in Nausgaard. Like the idea that sort of this sense of voluntaristic self assertion that's what's sort of negated. However, I think he still is an interesting moment because he's, he's also trying to reassert the self in in the in the in the in, in a sort of I guess a move beyond sort of the postmodern self. You know, you're not going to find <coughs> If you're, if you're sort of like, if you like someone like fictional authors like DeLillo, or um, I don't know, I guess Pynchon, maybe, um, you, know, you know, the idea that the self is is is, is something sort of re- endlessly reconstituted. So, so in a sense, for uh, Nowicki, there is some kind of reassertion of the self, even if it's not sort of an absolute sovereign self. And I think that's what's important. He says that sort of almost has like a therapeutic value for him. You know, that he sort of he constantly has to acknowledge this. This, this sort of unworking of the self at the heart of the self in, in his, in his, his autofiction. Now, um, so also I think, yeah, so in the, uh, uh, I guess, what the phenomenology we get of Struggle in is that, I think one of the things that his work performs, and I think one of the things that makes it really interesting is he's exceptionally uh, atmospheric. When he's writing at his best, he's he can, he can be really evocative about time and place as sort of, bringing forth uh, the human being. Right? He's also, try, I think, trying to reframe the habitual. So uh, Beckett, um, yeah, so I already mentioned Beckett. Beckett said that habit is the ballast that changed the, changed the dog to his vomit. Right. And in a sense, uh, what he's talking about is the, uh, the the idea, I think what Nalskart is doing is he's sort of taking that on board to some degree. Because uh, Beckett's idea with that is that the idea to sort of habits and dispositions are not life-affirming. They don't bring creativity, they don't bring movement. And in some sense, they're limiting. That's all a kind of habits. They are that which limits us. They congeal into uh, dispositions and practices. Now, he's not saying they don't happen, but in some sense, he says that the task of literature is to unwork that, is to, uh, is to unwork the quotidian. And he does it by doing excru- in excruciating detail, by paying hyper-attention to it in an effort to sort of bring literature close to life. Right? Uh, so the sense his work is, again, it's a form of attachment, which is why I find it interesting. It's a form of resensitizing, revitalizing, refreshing, rather than uh, devitalizing or deadening. Right? And uh, all of his texts, just like the angels who become seagulls, are about a commitment to life, a commitment to this worldliness. Right? Now, um, how am I doing for time, uh, Matt? I've got... Oh. Oh yeah, i to be doing that <laughs> yeah. It's 22. Okay, so I got, uh, what I'll do, I, I should really talk about this because it's the main thing uh, that sort of ties everything together. Um, now, <clears throat> I, I, I do recommend you read it, it's an interesting text. We have some of the quotes here, I don't think I'll have the time to read all of them now. Um, but these are from uh, the, uh, his essay, The Terrible Beauty of Brain Surgery. And I think that's what's, what's interesting about him. So what he does is he, he goes and visits a chap in Albania who's performing brain surgery, and he sits in on sort of, um, these are the actual patients, I think, from the, from the New York Times article. He sits in on, on open brain surgery where the patients are still awake, and he talks to them and stuff like that. So in a sense, he, he, that, that marks his struggle, I think, as well. He's not afraid to go to the difficult places. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but open brain surgery is... The limits of my uh, okay. my philosophical commitment, um, <laughs> but uh, he also, I mean, looking at Breivik as well, the, the Breivik essay is wonderful. I recommend you all read it. You will be better people if you do. Um, also, I mean, con- confront constantly having to confront the trauma of his father's violence. But uh, in this text, I'll, I'll, what I'll do is, um, I'm, well, I'm 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 I don't, I'm not sort of qualified enough to say these are good descriptions or bad descriptions of uh, of brain surgery. But I'm going to read, um, uh, I'll go and read uh, quote one um, on, on the handout. So the silence was total. The single focus of attention was uh, a head clamped in a vise in the middle of the room. The upper part of the skull had been removed, and the exposed edge covered in layer after layer of gauze, completely saturated with blood, forming a funnel down into the interior of the cranium. The brain was gently pulsating, it went in. It resembled a small animal in a grotto or the meat of an unopened muscle. Two doctors were bending over the head, each of them moving long, narrow instruments back and forth inside the opening. One nurse was assisting them, another was standing a few yards away watching. A whispery slurping sound issued from one of the instruments. Okay. So then you can see the sort of this excruciating detail, literally. Right? Um, but also then, when he's looking at the brain, we go to sort of a quote two and we get this and I think I'm glad Oli was talking about the, um, the distinction between live and corpor. I think that's, that, that's sort of playing out here as well. Um, he says, a landscape opened up before me. I felt as if I were standing on the top of a mountain, gazing out over a plain uh, Covered by long, meandering rivers, on the horizon more mountains rose up. Between them, there were valleys. And you know, of the valleys was covered by an enormous white glacier, everything gleamed and glittered. It was as if I'd been transported to another world, another part of the universe. One river was pur- purple, the others were dark and red, and the landscape they course through was a full of strange, uh, un- unfamiliar uh, colours. Now, I'll read one more quote. Um, I'll read. I direct you to quote number four before I try to provide a, a, a wee commentary on that. Petrella then told me so. Petrella is one of the uh, the brain surgeons. Then told me a story about his former boss that he used to remove certain types of brain tumours with his index finger, no instruments, nothing. He just poked his finger down into the brain and, plop, out came the tumour. Petrella gave a demonstration. Yeah, there is a slight levity to that, yeah, yeah. He held his long index finger up in the air, bent it like a hook, and pretended to jerk something out while he laughed. It is really important to communicate your essay structure to the reader by signposting. This is not to say, sorry, I thought that was something I put in there. He's <laughs> that good. I thought it was like, did I, did, did I actually just uh, <laughs> cut and paste some feedback to students there? <laughs> okay, now well, this is all scarred, Right? It is really important to communicate your essay structure to the reader by signposting. This is to say you need to provide an algorithm to answer the question. As he did it, I knew I would remember the gesture for the rest of my life. So something like that, I think, basically, yeah. Now, what we get in this is we get this sort of brutal instrumentalism, right? Looking at the brain, right? And we get, in terms of the, this literary essay on uh, craniotomies, we get this sort of factual reportage. There's a fidelity to the intricacies of the, the mechanics, the instruments, yet at the same time, there is this kind of almost romantic uh, idea of the brain, not just as meat, you know? Not just as that club, you know? Not just as an, as an instrument, right? So what he's doing is he's... We see this sort of, as a good example of his hypernaturalism, of or what I call this hypernaturalism. At least, uh, he's synthesizing the bluntly factual, the hyper-detail, with sort of the aesthetic, and the idea that, in some sense, that the brain is a form of of of, of life. And in some sense, he, uh, at one point, he uh, in the in, in the in the essay, he talks about a dream he had the night before, where he kind of sort of. Dissociates himself and he kind of sort of uh, sort of leaves his body, sort of sort of a nightmarish moment. And in some sense, he says, "That's kind of giving us a clue to this sort of oscillation between first and third person that he's trying to uh, he's trying to, uh, to, uh, to, to 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 articulate." So, so we get this. So in this essay, then I think we get the sort of the themes that tie together with what I'm talking about. We get this the blend of the personal and the impersonal.
1: Now we also
0: get I think I think. I can 't say the word materialism because it's not clearly not what he's doing he's not talking about materialism in the reductive sense. all I mean sort of by materialism in, 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 in Ausgard is a commitment to this this worldliness right that's what his literature is trying to do so it's ultimately not materialism I mean it's not reductive right it's not even sort of literary materialism in the sense that we try to break down the mechanics of a, of, a, of a texts. but what does he does he, uh, does he does he uh, does he um, what does it tell us about the brain for phenomenology, what does it tell us about the, how we can confront it with literature? And uh, I think, so, what is the brain, really, for, um, uh, for, 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 for And this uh, is, this is a phrase I'm taking from a uh, conversation with Ray the last time I met, actually. So the brain is a necessary, but not sufficient condition. I hope I got that right, Ray. the sounds about right? Yep. good. So basically, you, one obviously has to have a brain, in a sense, that it's, you know, it's there. But it's not tea, you know. It's not like a, it's not a, you know. It's not sort of enough. There has to be more to it. The brain operates with all types of different things. With a sense of directness towards others, towards uh, towards the, the world. Uh, and in a sense, also I think when he's talking about sort of ponty is valuable here, that uh, the body is in parts of the body are. Not reducible to the body. Right. The brain is not an accomplishment in and of itself. The brain is sort of transcends itself, itself it surpasses itself, it relates to the world. Um, mm-hmm. And we get that idea sort of, that the ponty quantity doesn't divisible and the invisible, that mm-hmm. that's what Malespett is trying to do. He's trying to, the strife between first person and third person is what he's trying to articulate. And that's what uh, is what sort of makes up a makes up a I guess a self in literature. So, um, I think, I'll, I think there's one more quote I'd like you to uh, do. Is it one of yours or one of his? <laughs> uh, yes, one of the students. He's <laughs> a very good student. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so quote number six, please. Um, so, he, so he talks to some of the people of the patients in the, in, the, in, the, in the text, right? And he says, I hadn't dared to speak to her during the operation, but now I went over. I wanted to ask her how she was doing, but when I saw her laying there with her hands shielding her eyes, I said and said in a thick voice, you were very brave. After it, when I took off the disposable gown, the face mask and the cap, the cap on the ground floor, <coughs> I felt shaky. Oh, man, Pellegrin, he's another clinician, uh, Pellegrin said, it was like her mind occupied the whole room. Right? And in a sense it was like, what an Oscar I thought communicated very well in that instance is the Sort of the atmosphere of mind suffused the entire room. It inhabited the entire room, despite the fact that the brain was actually there, alive, pulsing. Right. So I think that's 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 a useful sort of place to move to the conclusion. So what am I trying to say? In some sense, that Nausgaard is kind of offers a species of hypernaturalism. The literary work is not something complete in itself. There is a Blanchotian moment in in Nausgaard. But also, uh, in that essay, we can see that he's not, his hi- hypernaturalism is something that avoids of, sort of reductive brain sciences, I think, or reductive neuro- neurology and things like that. You know, I mean, Chris is going to talk about this in much more detail later, sort of the critique of the neuro novel. You know, in some sense, for Nalsberg, the brain is not something accomplished. You know, it's not just there, right? Um, also, I tried to talk about the phenomenology of struggle. And I think, in some sense, Naliska is trying to reclaim a sort of a sense of mitigated agency and right? uh, try and move fiction beyond the postmodern moment. And uh, the last quote there, I think, is from, um, sorry, I should have the but I think it's from Summer, uh, one of the, the quartets, in that he says, in some sense, he's, he constantly says that, in some sense, he's, he's looking for the self all the way through this, and he ultimately says, he comes to the conclusion that there is no self there, but that's not what's important. And so that makes a sort of phenomenological insight. He says, the crucial thing isn't who I am, but that I am. And I'll leave it there. Thank you.